0: This morning, I'd I'd like for those that have their Bibles with them to turn with me through the passages that we'll look at, and also, if you desire, to think about them between services, and and we'll talk about the principles involved uh, in the lesson tonight. Many times when it comes to the New Testament, we have talked about the difference between the New and the Old Covenant. And among those differences, uh, there have been those that said and taught that the New Testament emphasizes the spirit of the matter, emphasizes a condition of heart, uh, as opposed to the Old Testament that was very legalistic and did not emphasize a certain condition of heart. What I'd like to do in these passages, first from the Old, and first from the new, and second from the new, is to show that in your relationship with God, the most important thing from your standpoint, not from God's standpoint now in, in what He's done. But the most important thing from your standpoint, as pertains to your right standing before God, is an attitude of heart, a condition of mind, your feelings, if you may. And without this attitude of heart, without this condition of mind, without these feelings, no one, either in the old or the new, has ever been right with God. That these feelings, this condition of mind, this attitude of heart, is important over and above any action uh, that any individual goes through. Let's look at the passages and see how they're taught in the old, and and then look at the new, and then after that make application to ourselves, but before we do we'll sum up by looking at at what should happen uh, today to cause us to have these kind of feelings. Now in the old they were expected to have these feelings based on something else. Uh, We have something that goes even beyond that to motivate and to cause us to have this kind of feeling. Turn first to Psalms 51. This is David's prayer to God after his sin. Uh, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. In trying to cover up that adultery, he has had a man put to death. Uh, He's now been rebuked and exposed. Uh, David knows that according to the law of Moses, he should be killed. Legally, his life should be taken. And so knowing that he has done something worthy of death, uh, knowing how he looks in the eyes of God, knowing that he's not only committed adultery, but that he has lied and had a man murdered and has tried to deceive other people in the process, in this frame of mind, he goes to God in, in prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Brought out my transgressions. Notice, first of all, David went to God because he understood something about God. To David, God was not a legalistic father who was ready to sap him every time he did something wrong. But God was his father in heaven. He had given him rules It was for David's good. David had broke those rules. But the reason David instead of running, is turning back to God, is that notice now, have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love. David was confident that God loved him. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away of all my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. And so David was confident that God not only loved him, but that God was compassionate and merciful And that it wasn't beyond love and compassion and mercy to wipe out sin. And so a knowledge and understanding of the character of God motivates this prayer of David. I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. In other words, I can't get away from it. I don't sleep at night. It's always there. I know what I've done. I know it's wrong and it bothers me against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge notice an attitude of David again he's not saying well God you ought to understand I did this after all she was dressed in a certain way or God you can understand why I lied or had a man murdered I mean look at the shame that would have happened to me had they found out that I had done this Or, God, you shouldn't have allowed me to have been tempted in this way. But rather, he says, uh, I know my transgression. It's always before me. I know I've sinned against you. And and then the latter part of that verse 4, you are proved right when you speak and justified by what you judge. So, God, you're in the right. Your judgment is true. I stand condemned, and I realize it. One of the first steps, then, of a right standing before God is, first of all, Recognizing that God is not just the creator of the universe, but that God has made you in his image, and he loves you, he has mercy, he's compassionate. But then the next step is that when we make a mistake, the best way before God is to simply be honest. And don't throw the blame on somebody else, but put the blame where it is, recognize that we deserve the consequence. We are the ones that have made the mistake and God is just in his judgment. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from my mother that conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast heart within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God who saves me and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Now notice the key to the whole passage here as David goes to God. Verse 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You would take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Okay, for our purposes, let's stop right there. <coughs> Under the old law, when a person sinned, he offered a sacrifice. This sacrifice, we understand now, typified the Christ to come. The sacrifice said that even when you repent, there has to be an atonement for your sin, and therefore the sacrifice. But David says, God, I know that the important thing is is not me just doing this physically I know that what you really want is a condition of heart on my part so he says you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it you take no pleasure in burnt offerings well what about it? after David's sin did he sacrifice? well there's several specific examples isn't there? after David's sin that he went out and offered the sacrifice well did God ask him to? yes well what is he saying here? the sacrifice of god or a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart oh god you will not despise david is putting the emphasis where it should be and that is that if my heart is not really sorrowful and i don't really understand how that i have sinned and i am responsible for it and i'm really sorry for it and i've really changed my mind and i really, if i don't have that condition of heart then I can offer sacrifices all day long and it has no meaning whatsoever. So we see something even under the law that the, the physical act that symbolized something never took precedence over feelings at an attitude of heart. The feelings and the attitude of heart are what made the physical act have meaning. Remember John the Baptist in the New Testament When he made the statement to some that came to his baptism, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Go and do works meet for repentance. In other words, baptism will do you no good whatsoever. You're wasting your time and mine unless you've repented. And so unless you have reached the point where you have an attitude of heart, where you have repented of your sins, baptism will just get me and you both wet, and that's it. But if the attitude of heart is right, Then what baptism symbolizes, what? The washing away of sins. The symbol means nothing without the reality of the spiritual truth. It's just a a vacant vacuum, it has no meaning. And so it is with the sight under the law of Moses. The physical rituals that they went through in their worship had absolutely no meaning whatsoever separate apart from the feelings of the individuals. Only if their heart was right, only if their feelings were right, only if their understanding was there, so far as their relationship with God, did then the physical act have any meaning whatsoever. Okay, let's come to a, another passage. Just flip over here and uh, first, well, let's go to Micah. Micah, the sixth chapter, beginning with verse six. Micah six, and verses six through eight. Notice again the contrast that we have an attitude of heart, uh, a type of life that will result from that attitude of heart, and that is the main ingredient that God wants. Anything else a person does is really a reflection of this attitude of heart from within. Micah, the sixth chapter, uh, and beginning with verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Okay, let's pause there. He said, what shall I come before God with? With burnt offerings, thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil. Well, under the law of Moses... They offered animal sacrifices, they had the anointing with oil and the various washings with oil and all of these physical elements, just like we have physical elements in the Lord's Supper, in our worship. We have a physical element in baptism that's part of the Christian experience. And so the writer is saying, how do I approach God? What do you want me to do, God, to, to be baptized, uh, to pay for the Lord's Supper 50,000 times, what do you want to sing a million songs? What do you want me to do? "He showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. The sacrifices under the old law for a person who was walking in a just way, who loved mercy and was humble before God, then they took on meaning because they represented what was in the human heart. And so a physical act in worship can have its meaning only in response to what is in the human heart. And it can stand for something only if that something is is in the human heart. But the physical act has no meaning whatsoever There is nothing about the physical act that sanctifies anybody before God. There is no physical act that anybody can do either before or after he becomes a Christian or before or after he becomes a Jew that's going to sanctify that person before God. What is important is a condition of heart. And if that condition of heart is there, then physical acts that stand for certain things can take on meaning. And so, speaking to people at that day, and if you read the whole context in Micah, you find out that you had individuals who, on the one hand, claimed to believe in God, and they worshipped, and they offered sacrifices, and they apparently were willing to offer rams by the thousands as sacrifice to God. But, there was very little justice, very little love and mercy, and very few people walking humbly before God. And so maybe then translated that no matter how many church buildings, no matter how many people decked out in a suit or a nice dress that's, and that's gone to that church building on Sunday, no matter how many Lord's suppers are gonna be eaten or how many people that are gonna be immersed or how many songs that are gonna be sung, none of that will substitute for an attitude of heart involving love, mercy, humility, a love for justice, and righteousness. If that attitude of heart is present, then the physical acts that are expressive of certain things can themselves be meaningful. But the meaningfulness of any physical act only takes place after the feelings and the attitude of heart are established as right before God. Let's turn back to another prophet, Amos, the 5th chapter. Amos, the 5th chapter, beginning with verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings I will have no regard for them Away with the noise of your songs I will not listen to the music of your harps But let justice roll on like a river Righteousness like a never failing stream Same message isn't it? Religious feast. And he says, I hate them. They came together in their assemblies to worship God. And he said, I I cannot stand your assemblies. They offered burnt offerings in obedience to the command given by God. And he says, I will not accept them. I have no regard for them. They were singing songs and playing the harp. And he says, your songs are so much noise and I don't want to hear your harps. but let justice row on like a river righteousness like an ever-failing stream. I wonder sometimes when I read that how anybody can read the prophets and look at the history of Israel and make statements that the God of the Old Testament somehow was some legalistic person that and that everything about it was so legalistic and there was no mercy or compassion God has always been a loving Heavenly Father that was concerned about what we felt in our hearts. And worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament from God's standpoint has never been the type of thing where people could go through some rituals and that would somehow substitute for a lack of godliness in life. How would you translate that to the New Testament? I hate, I despise your religious feast. I cannot stand your assemblies. And though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Away with the noise of your songs and the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream." Based on this, how far does worship go in a nice building. Hundreds of people singing to the top of their voice, putting money into a contribution, reading the Bible, partaking of the Lord's Supper, immersing people into their fellowship. But righteousness, godliness, mercy, humility of heart, is not prominent in that group. And when I get out of it, I, I hate your assembly. You're, you're wasting your, your time. Doing the exact right thing is not the important thing in religion. The important thing is an attitude of heart if that attitude of heart is right, you will do the exact right thing to the best of your knowledge and understanding. But it's not a matter of this being equal to that, doing the right thing being equal to the attitude of heart, or a matter that, as one brother we used to have that I love very much said, wouldn't it be good to have both together, that where I've got a choice, I'll take truth, even though the Spirit is not there, I don't believe it's valid. I don't believe that truthfully going through some right acts, properly mercy, properly eating the Lord's Supper, properly calling ourselves, properly doing anything, will ever in any sense, by any stretch of the imagination, substitute for an attitude of heart and for feelings. Singing songs that are accurately written we will not substitute for an attitude of heart that means what is said. Put yourself in the Lord's place. One person is singing a song, believing every word that he's singing, and it truly represents his thinking, and when he says, Jesus, I surrender all, he believes it in his heart and wants it. There are a few mechanical things about that worship that are wrong due to the ignorance of that person whose heart is is with the Lord. Somebody else is singing that song legally correct. Nothing wrong in any sense. But the feeling is not there. Their words are being sung, but they really don't represent what's in the heart. Which one do you think is right before God or either of them right? Do you have to have both? There is no substitute for a right attitude of heart, a right feeling. You understand this in your own relationships. You and I both do. In our marriages and whatnot. Do you have any problem forgiving an offense toward you by your mate or your child or your parent if you know that they really love you and they want what's best for you, but in ignorance they've done some particular thing wrong. As opposed to somebody that has done the right thing but really doesn't love you. We know the difference, don't we? That that attitude of heart is all important. Come over here to Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Beginning in verse 23. teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a nap and swallow a camel. What are you teachers of the law, Pharisees, hypocrites, you've cleaned the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence? Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup, and then the outside will be clean. What's he saying there? When he says, clean the inside, and the outside will be clean also. What is he saying? Herbert, do you want to drink out of a cup that's clean on the outside and looks real pretty, but it's all germy on the inside? There, the problem here was one of emphasis, wasn't it? It wasn't one of uh, uh, giving 10% down to the last garden herb. That was right, wasn't it? That wasn't the problem. It was one of emphasis that they should have emphasized justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And he said, if you emphasize these matters of the heart, the other will take place. Get the inside clean, the outside will be clean also. Reach the point where we love God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and we're humble before God, and we're merciful, we're kind, and we and we have these qualities that we're putting within us, and and then getting the externals correctly correct will be no problem whatsoever. Let's go over to another passage, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. And again, the emphasis is the fact that in all that we do in our relationship with God, your feelings. And your attitude of heart are all important. And no amount of right doing of anything, whatever it is, will substitute or stand in place for that. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith to move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body into flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Then he goes on to the things that would fail and would pass away. Well, according to Paul, after our I sit down and you partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a, a contribution. Paul is saying that the most important thing about that contribution is your attitude of heart. And if what you do is not done out of love and cheerfully, and because you want to, then it has no meaning. And that when you partake of the supper, the most important thing is the attitude of heart, that you and I can sit here and partake of these emblems and miss it completely. The most important thing is the, the attitude of heart. And in all of our relationship, the most important thing is the attitude of heart. Now, the question becomes, flip on back to Romans the Fifth chapter, under the new covenant, how in the world do we ever reach the point where we have this attitude of heart? I know we've missed it some ways. We've, I, I don't have how many sermons I've, I mentioned giving a well while ago, I don't know how many sermons that I've heard pointing out that these dumb people over there that think they still got to give a tenth or a tithe to the Lord. Uh, when in reality, you you just give as you've prospered and as you feel in your own heart, and and so if all you feel like giving is 2%, then that's all that really matters. And if the day you die, 2% is all you ever feel, to, feel up to, then, then that's fine. I wonder if that's a right understanding. Or when it comes to how much of your time are you going to sacrifice or how much you're going to do or whatever that uh, if you never reach the point that you can do very much uh, because you want to then just don't do very much look at this in the 5th chapter since we have been justified through faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into his grace, in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope and the glory of God. Not only so, but we rejoice in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Hope does not disappoint us. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. You see, that at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How has God poured out his love? The whole subject there is the excess we have into God's grace through our faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit is the agent that's revealed all this information. And so it says God has shed his love, poured out his love into our heart by this great act that he's accomplished. Now how do we reach the point where we feel the way David felt the way Micah said that we should feel, or Amos said we should feel, or Jesus said we should feel. How do we reach the point where we feel the way Paul said that we should feel? Well, Paul's giving you his answer as to why he felt the way that he did. In fact, hold your place there again. We'll come back to it. And look over to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, and, and verse 10. Paul makes a the statement there, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. What made Paul the hard worker that he was? What caused Paul to work so hard to reach others? To sacrifice in the way that he did? His understanding of the grace of God, wasn't What's he saying here in the fifth chapter? You know, Sherwood made the point a few weeks back. And he's made it several times. I thought it was very good. And he was advocating watching a certain movie about the life of Jesus, and he pointed out that even if there are some inaccuracies in the movie, that there are some very good things that help you to appreciate what you have in Christianity and what Christ did for you. And he pointed out there is no substitute. And when you read it, it's not quite like seeing the event itself and when you watch it on the movie and you see a man literally nailed to the cross after having been beaten and spit on and mocked and made fun of and then stood up and jarred and then mocked and made fun of and then die in all that agony he said there's something there that moves you let's go a step further with that when you see that happening And they nail him to the cross and they spit on him and they mock him and they make fun of him and they hang him there. If you can just take your mind and say, hey, remember the thief saying to the other thief, we deserve to be here. And so if you can put yourself up there and say, this is what I deserve. And so you just walk up to the cross. And they're gonna spit on you and mock you and make fun of you and beat you up and nail you to that thing and stick you up there and give you exactly what you deserve. And he walks up and says, I'll take your place. Why? Because I love you. I don't know how that a person can understand what's involved in what Christ did for us and have any problem in loving God with all his heart and all his mind and all his soul I don't believe a person understands what Jesus did and then asks such questions or makes such statements of do I have to come to the Bible study how much do I have to give How much time do I have to give? I just don't believe you make statements like that. Whoever it is, the person that is making that statement doesn't understand what happened. You and I are dying because we deserve to die. But we can have eternal life because he took our place and he suffered what you and I deserve. And it seems to me our only response is what Paul's was. I want to be the Bible study every time I possibly can. I want to study his word every time I possibly can. I want to give all that I can. I mean, I have to live. But I want to give all that I can. And and I want to promote good works the world over that are promoting the good news of salvation in Christ. And I want to take this intelligence that God has given me. And the world's always telling me how I can use this, and I can become an engineer and a lawyer and, and, and a doctor and, or whatever it is, or a manager, or I can make a lot of money and, and I can use that and build all these things. But I can use that same intellect, if it's that good, to come to a tremendous understanding of God's Word. And the same zeal that we would do the others to, to share the information of salvation in Christ. It seems to me that the only natural response is whatever you have, uh, whether it's academic ability, physical ability, or a combination of both, uh, the only attitude of response is all that you can do for the Lord. If the attitude of heart is correct, nobody will have to argue with you about doing some little physical thing that Jesus has asked you to do. The people that argue about those things have never understood what happened at the cross. The people that understand that are not arguing and fussing and fighting or gloating about the doing of a few things right. But I believe they just simply have put their life in submission to the Son of God. If you're in the audience today as one that is not a Christian, God loves you so much that he gave Jesus to die for you. He wants you to live forever. You can never make so many mistakes, but that God is willing to forgive you. You can never be so wrong, but that God is willing to make you right. God wants you to humble yourself before him and acknowledge your sin, change your mind, and in Christ, he'll blot out all your sins. Baptism is a physical act that has no meaning whatsoever, separate and apart from your heart. But if you understand that God wants you to identify with the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, and, and he wants you to put to his trust and repent of your sins and have the remission of your sins, with that understanding, then that physical act can symbolize your identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the washing away of your sins. If you're not a Christian and desire to become one, we give you the opportunity as together we stand and sing.